Welcome to the Chrisman Commentary Daily Mortgage News Podcast. I'm your host, Robbie Chrisman. Topics on today's episode include U.S. bank ratings, my interview with Bank of England mortgages Quentin Harris on the art and science of forecasting the housing, mortgage, and bond markets, and remember those good old days when all we had to worry about was inflation? <laughs> I'd like to thank today's podcast sponsor, Richie May a recognized leader in providing specialized advisory, audit, tax, technology, and other services in the mortgage industry and in banking. To learn more, visit richiemay.com. The Ides of March and college basketball time. Yesterday, I saw a woman in Walmart with March Madness teeth. She was down to her final four. But, um, tsh- <laughs> March Madness is in full swing, whether it's hoops or bonds or bank stocks. Is it really a fundamental structure plunging in the United States financial system? Doubtful. Well, Moody's came out with a warning about downgrading certain banks in the United States. It's not 2008, and I wonder how much of this is psychology. Tweeting is now causing a run on deposits. Banks everywhere are looking at their liabilities their deposits, since they owe their depositors money, and assets, aka the money lent out using their depositors' money or securities owned. Lending long and borrowing short works when banks can pay very little on their deposits, like checking accounts earning 0%, and take that money and earn 4 to 6% on securities. But when the deposit base becomes unstable and a bank has to liquidate those securities at 80 or 90 cents on the dollar, it becomes a problem fast. Banks are required to do a monthly stress test that looks at the bank's balance sheet and earnings. Should rates go up 100, 200, 300, 400 basis points instantly, and on a sustained basis. It's done by the finance department and is looked at by boards and regulators. Or at least one would think. For today's interview, I wanted to welcome to the show Bank of England Mortgages' Quentin Harris to talk about the art and science of forecasting the housing, mortgage, and bond markets. He's a VP of Northeast Florida for the Jacksonville, Florida branch of Bank of England Mortgage and leads a highly talented team of professionals dedicated to providing the highest level of accuracy and customer service. He's also the host of his own podcast, which we'll get into in a minute. We'll get to we'll get to your podcast and podcasting in a second, but I want to start with kind of the obvious here. You you work for Bank of England, and yes. that's obviously not the Bank of England that sets monetary policy across the Atlantic Ocean. It's Bank of England Mortgage based out of Florida. Why was that name chosen? So that's interesting. We get that question all the time. And uh, I kind of chuckled when you were asking it because when we first, you know, the bank's actually been around since 1898. Uh, it was founded in uh, England, Arkansas. And so, in as you know, in the early 1900s, late 1800s, whatever city you were incorporated in, as far as a bank, you were the bank of that city. Uh, I'm sure that when you went to school in Texas, there might at some point been a bank of Austin. Um, you know, I know in Jacksonville, there was a bank of Jacksonville. And that's typically how those banks were derived. We just happened to be in England, Arkansas. So it's Bank of England, not the Bank of England. And we always joke and say it's not the one across the pond. It's the one here in the U.S. Um, but uh, that's that's how that name has really kind of stayed. And it is it is a catchy name. It does draw attention. When we first opened up here about you know 14 years ago, we used to get you know questions about exchange rates and pounds, and you know, and, and some of our competitors have poked fun at it. Uh, but anyway, look at it, its attention, and so uh, we took it and ran with it. And it's been a uh, it's been 
it's been a, a staple for us here in Florida and for the bank ever since 1898. They've had ample opportunities to change it. They just have chose not to do it. Yeah, that reminds me of a, a joke from the comedian Tom Segura, and he's talking about how he hates these towns that name themselves after great cities like uh, London and London, Ontario and Canada, or Paris, Texas. He goes, and even in Paris, Texas, they put up a mini Eiffel Tower, like some redneck's <laughs> going to come through there and go, oh, well, Sacre Blue, look at that. It's the Eiffel Tower, you know. So, right. Uh, but it does it does wonders for advertising. Uh, very quickly, can you explain the channels you're in, what, what you guys are working on? So we're residential mortgage side uh, for the bank. Uh, the bank has multiple sides. We anchor that side for them here in Northeast Florida. Uh, we do essentially retail lending uh, with a large concentration in purchases. Uh, we work with numerous builders and then uh, countless real estate agents. And we have wonderful partnerships across the city that have allowed us to be, you know, number one in our market for quite some time. It's not technically, we're, we're not owned by like a builder. And we're not owned by a real estate agency, which makes us very rare in today's market. Um, but in all the categories, we're, we have one of the largest market shares of any lender and we're units-wise number one lender in the area. Um, so from a retail standpoint, we've done a really good job of just providing service and capture rate to our market. You specifically specialize in housing and forecasting. And, and I want to ask you, is that more of an art or a science? And kind of how'd you, what's your, what's your background with that and how'd you get into it? Yeah, this is a, this is a passion. You know, I went to, uh, I graduated from the University of Tennessee. It's funny. You said Paris, there's a Paris, Tennessee too, as well. I was <laughs> that. So it's like, how many things are there like that out there? But, um, so my background's in finance and economics and, you know, doing mortgages day, I've been doing this for 21 years, day one out of college. And, you know, it's fun. And it's, it's also, uh, you know, how can I say it? Exhausting. And then at some point, you got to find a way to stand and rise above the competition. And everybody's looking for a way to define themselves. And one of the passions that uh, myself and a, and a fellow colleague here in my office, Alex Stewart, um, was that we loved forecasting the local market. More importantly, we found out that you know there's this there's this need for that because every headline we get is a national headline. Um, every forecast we get is a national forecast, and you know it's kind of like when you're in a classroom and they say the average grade in this class is you know uh, an 80. It doesn't mean a 98 didn't happen. And so what we found is that we wanted to be that 98 for Jacksonville. We wanted to be able to say, how do we provide a forecast for all of Northeast Florida that doesn't currently exist? And so we really started delving into metrics, uh, BLS reports, really started getting very granular in Jacksonville. Uh, we've struck a partnership uh, with the MLS um, and, uh, and and the local NIFAR, which is Northeast Florida Realtor Association. We're working towards getting one with them. Um, but they've allowed us to get some data and then compilate and interpret that data that just really hasn't been done. And we've been doing that for about seven years. And uh, you know, like a fine wine, we're getting better with time. But it's really cool when you forecast things in your local market and they come true. And it's not because you're just guessing and throwing darts out there. It's because you can accurately look at trends and you can also teach agents and other lenders how to seasonalize their business um, and how to actually build a pipeline more so than on what rates are going to do versus what the market trends do. All right, Mr. Fine Wine, I'm going to put you on the spot then. Oh, and I'll ask you, you. <laughs> I got some questions about the housing industry because obviously it's yeah. it's a tough time out there and, and there's a lot of factors sure. going on, whether that's affordability or supply or, or rates, what all of it. Rates have dipped from la rates had dipped from last fall, but they're they're back on the rise here recently as the Fed seems like it's going to be more hawkish than mm -hmm. many had hoped. What's that mean for the housing industry in your opinion? 
Man, you know, I love this question. Um, we do multiple discussions about this and quite a few podcasts about it as well. So um, I'll take a minute to break down the the two sides of this coin. So as the CPI continues to show um, signs of, of flattening, not necessarily improving, um, you know, the rates are going to be on the same trend line. And so as the Federal Reserve's only bullets they have left in this, this chamber, if you may, to kind of fight inflation is to raise the uh, the fed funds you know the effective fed funds rate the reality behind that is as they raise that um what they're trying to do is fight inflation and they're trying to in hopes detour um the cpi and the pce ratings now what's happened over the course of the last really four or five months is they've changed they being how we measure the pc and the cpi the weighted averages are changing um it's almost as if they're moving the goalpost inside of these readings so historical readings aren't quite the same as current readings. Um, shelter cost, which is one of the largest readings inside of those inflationary indexes, I believe got bumped to about a 41 or 43% weighted, meaning it's the lar- it was already the largest weighted component of that. Now it's guaranteed the largest weighted component. And so shelter cost, as you know, um, is as simple as surveying people on their rents, about 8,000 people of what their rents are, and then also surveying people what they would rent their home for. So they're calling current homeowners and asking, you know, hey, Robbie, what would you rent your home for? And you own this home and you say, you know, $4,000 or $1,500. And they go, great, thank you. And that's about the extent of the survey. While very dated and antiquated, they still use that as a metric to create that shelter cost. As rates go up, technically, people's mortgage payments may go up. Uh, We know rents are increasing. But what's interesting is there's this theology is as they raise rates, they be in the Federal Reserve, that they're actually impacting the inflation of the housing market to the negative, meaning they're making that price go up in the monthly payment because rates are going up. So what we're hoping to see is that between now and May, some favorable CPI ratings. I believe there's a specific May 10th reading that's going to come out where when you look at the CPI readings, we believe that those rates are the CPI readings are going to come down because you're replacing a higher inflationary measure, measure with a current uh, inflationary measure that's not as high. So we think that that's going to come down by May 10th. We think the rates will subside and come back up after May 10th. So if I'm if I'm a homeowner and I'm looking to buy if I'm an agent and I'm looking to talk to buyers and if I'm an originator, I'm on deck right now having massive phone calls with every perspective person I have that's either pre-approved or looking to become pre-approved or is on the fence and saying, hey, listen, between all indications that that we're seeing forecasted show that between now and June, that's when you're going to get the most favorable rate. You're going to get a dip. And after that, our indications show that that might come back to today's reading. And where we are currently. And I think that's real important that buyers understand that um, and take advantage of that affordability during that time. What it means for the housing market, though, is that across the country, we're undersupplied. Now, granted, there's some pockets that that are going to be submarkets that we can't really pinpoint that may be uh, oversupplied, but for the most part, we're severely undersupplied. And so there's this thought process from many buyers that go, I'm just going to wait till the rates come down. And probably three, four months ago, there was a slew of buyers that said, I'm going to wait and see what happens to the housing market. We think prices are going to drop. Well, prices didn't drop. Uh, They may have came down and flattened out, but they didn't significantly fall down, such as the news wanted them to believe that there was this bubble. And so now New Year's resolutions kick in and upcoming rents have to be renewed and people going, wait a minute, my rent's increasing. I can buy a house. Um, And it didn't go down like I thought it would. 
that's because there's so much demand and not enough inventory that the housing market is going to continue to go up. It may not go up at these exuberant rates, but we're going to go up at the 2 to 5% range across the country, minus a few sub-markets. Um, and I think buyers are seeing that and settling in. But for buyers that are looking to get the biggest bang for their buck, it's going to be between now and June. And it, you're going to want to jump on it before the sellers absorb the affordability of that rate. Um, that would be my advice of what I think rates are going to do and how that impacts the housing market. That's great advice. And I, I think one fear of mine, or not fear, maybe concern of mine is the Fed is trying to avoid this wage price spiral that we hear about where mm-hmm. uh, you know things cost more, so workers demand more money. So as a result of companies paying workers more money, they charge more for things and it you know, spirals out of control like that. Aren't we already there? It, it, yeah, seems, so- it seems like we are. Yeah, I love this. I love this conversation as well. So, you know, people often associate wage wage inflation, if you may, to one of the um, to one of the factors of inflation, right? We, we blame wage inflation. And I was guilty of it early on too, because I was like, if we keep doing it, everything you just said, but the reality is it's okay if people make more, just as long as they're saving more. And the reality is we've gotten to a society level to where people have become very comfortable spending more. Um, I don't know how it is where you're currently at, but there's, I go into every restaurant here and there's a waiting list. Um, and you know, and the economy and the economic measures tell me that shouldn't be happening, but it is. And I believe there was a credit card, um, credit card debt came out uh, a week ago. We got to see that we're cresting nine hundred and eighty-two billion dollars in credit card debt. Fifty-three percent of Americans are not paying that debt off in full, which means they're financing that at an average rate of almost twenty percent, nineteen point six. So the while things are inflated. And wage inflation is inflated. It's not stopping people from spending when, in fact, they should be saving. I think the savings rates is one of the lowest it's been pre-COVID um, in the United States as well. And so we have a uh, we have a society problem as far as spending. And um, and I'm not sure that that was uh, created by COVID um, because people got at home and they were able to just buy online and, and live their life online. And now you're compounding that lifestyle plus going out and eating lifestyle. Um, I'm not so sure that those two things don't go together, but they may. But to your point about wage inflation is that people are demanding more. And I think there's also uh, there's also an aspect of lack of workers in the market. So when you have lack of workers in the workforce, the ability to demand more in order to keep your employees, um, especially productive ones, um, usually usually shows up and people get paid more for doing jobs that you normally wouldn't pay them. And the challenge with that is that'll never go backwards. Like you're never going to see someone that's making $15 an hour go back to what used to be the minimum wage prior to COVID. And so when we talk about price inflation, it's probably, it's no doubt it's here to stay. Prices aren't going to retreat. They just may level off. And uh, that does pose a challenge in uh, the producer price you know, index as well, because if these prices keep going up, they're going to have to continue to pass more down to the consumer. And the the savings rate is ultimately a huge factor when it comes to home ownership. And and as we alluded here pre- earlier on this podcast, it's a tough time for production in the mortgage industry. How do you feel like companies can get creative? Obviously, the the main three avenues historically are product, price, service, and mm-hmm. uh, companies are getting squeezed on price. They're they're focused on their tech stack and and doing better service. Uh, they've gotten a little more creative in products. How how are you at Bank of England trying to win business? You know. 
That's an interesting question because I feel like every lender essentially does the same thing. I mean, it's really who's first to market, then who's the fastest to copy it. Um, there's really no like product advantage out there. Um, and the rates are all compressed to your point. Uh, the margins are all compressed and squeezed. So they're they're all relatively in line. I think the bigger question is who's willing to lose more money in today's market to buy the market. I mean, I think we just saw where Quicken posted a in the fourth quarter was a $493 million loss. Um, that's that's losing money essentially in the market. Uh, some may argue that's on deals. Some may argue that's on secondary repurchases, whatever is still losing money. So um, in today's market, the way that we're working on capturing business is being more of an advisor role than an originator. Um, I think the originator term is skewed because you got different definitions, whether it's a call center, whether it's retail, whether it's uh, you know in line with working for a builder. So providing value through advising. And what I mean by that is oftentimes, it's interesting, the lowest rate in the market, believe it or not, doesn't always transpose to the best deal for the customer. I mean, we've seen that numerous times and someone might go, Quentin, how could you possibly say a 2.75 isn't better, is better than a three and a half. That's that's not what I'm talking about in today's market. You know, you may be looking at a par rate of six and a half, but if you can offer that borrower, you know, a six point seven five with the two one buy down product because it comes with a little bit higher price, and then all of a sudden they can get a four seven five that first year, a five seven five that second year. That's a better deal for that borrower who has the ambitions and intentions of moving up in income and could possibly refinance based on the discussion we just had. At any time between rates go back down. And, and become uh, permanent during that time. So I think advising the borrower on the better products, also structuring deals to where the seller is a winner and the buyer is a winner. Um, I think in this world of real estate, specifically resales, and you see it with builders too, slashing prices to attract new buyers has always been the, the quote unquote, the status quo. But I think what we've seen are these permanent buy downs come to market to where you can educate the listing agent and the seller to say, instead of reducing your sales price $50,000 on a $700,000 home, let's contribute $14,000, which would be 2% of that purchase price towards the rate permanent buy down for that buyer saves you in this case, Mr. or Mrs. Seller, $36,000. And the buyer gets a bigger benefit in the payment reduction than that $50,000 you were going to do um, and, and that was recommended earlier. So advising along those ways um, and sitting down with buyers and sellers and bringing everyone to the table to understand how everyone wins. Plus, in this case, the neighborhood wins. You didn't do a price reduction. So future comps stay there um, for future purchases as well. So just really advising. I can't say enough about that. I agree with you. And and I'll reiterate, as I have on previous episodes, I I got a mortgage this last year and I didn't shop around at all. I went with uh, with a, a company that I felt like I had a good relationship with the executive staff and uh, they'd, they'd done a lot for me personally. And uh, so I felt like I'd, I wanted to reward them a little bit there. I want to transition slightly because you host a podcast and it's not often that I have another podcast host on here. What have you learned from hosting a financial podcast? Give give us a plug on on the, the title and, and where we can find it. And then Tell my audience just how skillful and witty I am to to be able to do this. <laughs> well, let me lead with that. So being a podcast host is a lonely echo chamber. 
Um, I can tell you right now, it takes a special person to do that because it's not oftentimes you're going to get feedback. Hey, Robbie, that was great. You did an amazing job. Uh, it's not often people are going to go straight to Apple, leave a five star review and um, give you a comment. You know, so you don't really know what you're doing, who you're impacting or who you're not impacting, especially if you don't couple that with a social media campaign. So, um, first of all, it does take uh, consistency, topic manner, inviting guests. Uh, it takes it's a it's a very considered full time job and it has to be consistent. I, I'm, I'm sure you were told this, but in case the audience doesn't know, you know, there's four million podcasts on Apple. And then there's 4 million on Spotify. Literally 3.8 million of those are in the graveyard, meaning they didn't get past seven episodes. So you've got 200,000 active podcasts, which anytime you go past seven episodes, you now have beat the odds. But what most people do is they jump into this podcast space, which is very crowded, by the way, and they go, man, I recorded that first episode. I can't wait to get it out and see what people think. And you record an episode that you, the host, think will be great but maybe the audience doesn't take to it. And then that lonely echo chamber comes in and you start questioning like, okay, am I doing the right thing? Is this right? And and you kind of start backpedaling. And then the podcast becomes a thing of the past because you're not getting the quote unquote, the, 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 the pats on the back that you want or the, or the basically affirmations you need. So it is, you have to be very witty and very determined and, <laughs> and have, and have a very strategic plan. Uh, the name of our podcast is what's your one more with the number one. Um, we're on every platform, Apple, Spotify, Amazon, Google, uh, YouTube, and uh, we have multiple social media outlets. I have a wonderful social media team that handles all of that for us with our reels on every social media platform you can think of. Um, and the ideology behind that is that literally my kids are the ones that came up with this title. And uh, they said, Dad, you know, you've been doing this for so long. You've met so many great people through your career, you know, and you can offer some financial literacy. Our goal was to offer literacy um, amongst the news headlines. So taking back earlier about forecasting and what we did and why we did it was really to kind of decipher the headlines because we literally say the news is not your friend. It's just not your friend. It's not there to motivate you, to help you, to educate you. It's there with an agenda that they be in the news particular station, whatever outlet you're listening to wants to do it. And the other downside is that people use their phone as a source of news, which is couldn't possibly be a worse thing to do when it comes to social media. So we're trying to add some clarity um, from a non-biased opinion on that. And it's been really rewarding. And we've been able to bring on some amazing guests that add to that, but also offer something different. Uh, we have motivational guests. We have growth and leadership guests. Um, one of the guests I had on the show was Damon West, who is one of the top motivational speakers on the circuit right now. Uh, matter of fact, tomorrow morning, John Gordon's going to be on the show. Uh, we had Patrick Young, former athlete, NBA uh, player and Florida Gator player that was a uh, Unfortunately, in a car accident eight months ago, paralyzed from the waist down. But his story is just it is actually the hair on my arm sticking up as I talk about it. The guy's got a smile that'll light up the room, and uh, he's got a tremendous passion uh, for what he's doing right now. So we try we try to mix in financial literacy as well as reward our listeners with some really amazing uh, guests that that kind of add to that personal growth and leadership aspect of life. Your first point is very well taken about this echo chamber because I I hit publish. And I see that I'll get the reports. Oh, you got thousands of downloads and I won't yep. hear anything from anyone except maybe my sister going, oh, you messed this up or, oh, you sounded sleepy this morning or <laughs> something like that. And I'm thinking, you know, I actually, this, this should be a public service announcement. Listeners to this podcast, if you have any comments, questions, whatever, email me, Robbie at robchrisman.com. I would love to hear from you. Love to hear from you. I hear nothing. So uh, I, I guess I want to ask you and I want to close with this. What's the feedback you've gotten about what people really enjoy, or, or I guess for me, how can I put out a better product for my listeners? 
So, you know, uh, this is a great question because I have found that some of the episodes that I think are probably some of the most educational, they're going to hit it out of the park, they fall flat. And then there's ones that I'm like, we're just doing this. And I mean, I don't know how it's going to sound. My producer is wonderful. He makes this the whole darn episode sound great. But those are the ones that just take off. Like, for example, we we talked about one on inflation and how to stop inflation, what the Federal Reserve is going to have to do to stop it. And uh, and this was back probably in September. That episode had like over 100,000 views. Um, but it was something that we said about at some point the price of a Starbucks is going to have to get to $8 a cup to where people stop spending money on it. And this velocity of money is going to have to stop going through the system. And I mean, you have people on the side that go, couldn't agree more. And then people that were like, how dare you tell me what to spend my money on? And so um, it it really does depend on the topic manner. Um, But I have found that Again, things that I think would be a home run, not as good as those that I'm not so sure of. And so we're still in that growing phase. We're still just under a year of launching. And I think you start to understand your audience. And when you're, anytime you're talking about economics and you're talking about people's money and you're talking about what it's going to take to fix some of the economic turmoil that we're in right now, it's going to have impact. And uh, some people don't like to hear what that impact is going to be because they're very opinionated. Um, but I have learned opinions better than no opinion at all. So um, it's good to get feedback, whether it's good or bad. Very well said. I'm going to head out to get my $10 breakfast bagel now, but uh, <laughs> I want to thank you for coming on and making the time for me today. I I really enjoyed this. And uh, I guess oh, consi- considering I enjoyed it, my listeners probably won't. No, I'm just kidding. But I really appreciate you coming on. Thank you. Hey, you know, thanks for having me on the show. I appreciate it. And to your point, you know, listeners go out there, five stars podcast for Robbie. Leave a comment <laughs> on Apple uh, and all the platforms that he's on or shoot him an email. What's great is that maybe tell him what you want him to talk about. Uh, I always find that rewarding uh, when you get email commentary, what the audience wants to hear, and then you go find it. Those are usually some of the best ones too. Thanks a lot, Quinn. Hey, thank you for having me on the show. Bond and stock market volatility is increased with plenty of intraday price changes. But taking a breath for a moment before the banking tumult won the last week, remember when all we had to worry about was inflation? Inflation at the consumer level continues to run well above the Fed's 2.0% target. Evidence yesterday by U.S. consumer prices rising in February by the most in five months. Inflation rose 0.4% month over month and 6% year over year. And if you strip out food and energy, inflation rose 0.5% month over month and 5.5% year over year. Housing was the big driver of the increase, with lower energy prices helping pull the number back down. Ongoing banking problems have made for a tough choice next week for the Federal Reserve over its interest rate decision. And though a 50 basis point rate increase has likely been taken off the table, officials must weigh still rapid inflation. The Fed may send a message that the banking problem is a bigger issue than people think by not raising rates only a few weeks after Fed Chair Powell teased the possibility of a 50 basis point hike. With the latest Fed funds futures predicting another 25 basis points increase, with a small probability that the Fed stands pat next week, today's economic calendar began with mortgage applications from MBA, which increased 6.5% from one week earlier. We've also received retail sales down 0.4%, excluding auto down 0.1%. The producer price index, which came in down 0.1%, that's good news. And Empire Manufacturing, which was way down. Later today brings January business inventories and the NHB housing market index for March. We begin the day with agency MBS prices better by a quarter to three-eighths, 
and the 10-year yielding 3.49 after closing yesterday at 3.64%. The two years down to 3.94%. Holy smokes, it's like a 100 basis point decline in a week. Let's wrap up with a joke and some housekeeping. Late on one Saturday night, the guard spotted O'Callaghan driving very erratically through the streets of Dungarvan, County Waterford. The policeman pulled him over and asked O'Callaghan if he'd been drinking that evening. Aye, so I have, to Saturday, you know, so me and the lads stopped by the pub where I had six or seven pints, chattered the inebriated O'Callaghan. Then there was something called happy hour, and they served these margaritos, which are quite good, had four or five of those. Then I had to drive me friend or alley home, and of course I had to go on for a couple of Guinness. Couldn't be rude, you know? And then I stopped on the way home to get another bottle for later. And O'Callaghan fumbled around in his coat until he located his bottle of whiskey, which he held up for inspection. The guard officer sighed and said, Sir, I'm afraid I'll need you to step out of the car and take a breathalyzer test. Indignantly, O'Callaghan replied, Why, don't you believe me? <laughs> Thanks again to Richie May, a recognized leader in providing specialized advisory, audit, tax, technology, and other services in the mortgage industry and in banking. To learn more, visit richiemay.com. Questions about the podcast or sponsoring opportunities? Send me an email at robbie at robchrisman.com. Visit robchrisman.com for more information on our industry partners, access to archived commentaries, and how to subscribe to the daily mortgage news and commentary. To listen to or download past episodes of this podcast, Search Mortgage News on any platform you get your podcast from.